Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. On a cold, bitter, rain-swept morning in November of 2017, two high-powered Washington, D.C. attorneys walked into the historic Elbert P. Tuttle Federal Courthouse on Forsyth Street in Atlanta with a seemingly monumental task. They would get only 15 minutes to convince three dour-faced judges that a lower court made a mistake in denying their client, a convicted murderer, an opportunity to appeal his case because of time-bar restrictions. In other words, the lawyers were there to argue that a lower court made a mistake in saying their client had run out of time to file his appeal. Roughly 300 miles to the southwest, prisoner number 902925 went about the normal course of his morning as a tenured guest of the Florida Department of Corrections. By that morning, 60-year-old inmate Crosley Green, a black man, had spent more than 28 years in custody for the kidnap and murder of a white man, Charles Chip Flynn, in a Titusville orange grove. May it please the court. Crosley Alexander Green has spent 28 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. Good morning, Your Honor. My name is Keith Harrison, and I and my colleagues, Gene Thomas and Robert Rode, represent Mr. Green in this case. The decision below should be reversed for two reasons. The petition was timely filed, and Mr. Green is actually innocent. Welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast and Season 5 of our True Crime Investigative Podcast. This season we're calling Left to Die. You'll soon understand why. I'm John Torres, reporter and narrator, and the descriptors I used earlier in talking about that Atlanta morning couldn't be more accurate, especially for this former New Yorker turned Floridian. It was freezing. It was wet. It was very un-Florida-like, and I couldn't wait to get inside that courthouse. The five-story U-shaped building was magnificent, with domed ceilings and arch-bronze casement windows. It was built in 1910 and just oozed history. The courtroom walls were covered with carved panels, and we walked atop a herringbone-patterned maple floor. I found a spot in the near-empty courtroom next to Erin Moriarty of CBS's weekly show 48 Hours. I wasn't quite sure what to expect from the hearing. But as we sat there waiting for the proceedings to begin, I was struck by the fact that just getting Crosley Green's case before three powerful federal judges was a testament to how much this case resonates with all who hear it. If you've listened to past seasons of Murder on the Space Coast, you know that there are others in prison maintaining their innocence and with compelling stories to match who are struggling to get the attention of a lawyer to argue on their behalf. Not so with Crosley Green. That in itself says something. 
And it's not because he has money, because he doesn't. The illustrious Washington, D.C. law firm Kroll & Mooring has spent millions of dollars representing Green since 2008 pro bono. They even stayed the course after their initial task of getting Crosley removed from death row was accomplished. Attorney Keith Harrison. So at that point, um, we told Crosley that even though our charge, our initial charge was to get him off death row, that, you know, with my firm's backing, um, that we were going to do whatever was necessary to exhaust his appeals until we were able to, to get him out of prison because he, you know, uh, based on everything we've learned, was actually innocent. 48 Hours' Erin Moriarty, based in New York City, has followed the case for more than two decades. And 48 Hours has dedicated significant airtime to telling Crosley Green's story over the years. To me, the Crosley Green case is one of the most egregious cases of racism and bad prosecution. There's just no question that there was a rush to judgment on this case. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This hearing in Atlanta would not determine anything in Crosley's case except whether a lower court erroneously ruled that the appeal should not be heard due to a technicality. And just a few minutes into the hearing, it began to seem like this might be a good day for a man who has steadfastly maintained his innocence since 1989. Here is what one of the judges had to say only four minutes into the hearing that cold, miserable morning. I'll tell you where I'm at. I, I, I think you've got a pretty good issue on timeliness. And if we reverse on that, then I, I'd, I'd like to hear from you where, where, where we go. That's, that's kind of where I'm at. Certainly, Your Honor. Um, so would you like me to address the timeliness issue or what happens if the court sends the timeliness, sends the case back to the district court? Well, it seems to me he filed a timely petition that was uh, insufficient once. He filed it a second time that was insufficient. The third time he filed it, it was fine. And under 11th Circuit precedent, that reverts back to the first one. So the district judge dismissed the case Without having a timeliness, uh, a proper, he made a mistake. That's that, what I. That's say. certainly our view, Your Honor. To follow up on Judge Murphy's question, um, what you're asking for, as I understand it, this is a question, um, is you want us to send it back to the district court so that the district court can consider your actual innocence claims on the merits. You're not asking us to do that now, right? Well, Your Honor, that is a fair question. And You'll I take will, either, I will give right? you an honest answer, Your Honor. <laughs> so here's the judge asking Crosley's team, you want us to send it back to the lower court to rehear the appeal, right? You're not actually asking us to rule on whether he's innocent or not. The laugh is because, wow, of course Crosley's attorney would love to jump ahead and get straight to the question of Crosley's actual innocence claim. But it wouldn't be that easy. Nothing in a murder case as fiery and complicated as this one ever is. And this one has everything. 
claims of racism, intimidation, coercion, prosecutorial misconduct, lying witnesses, suggestive photo lineups, betrayal, and perjury. I've been writing, reporting, and investigating the story of Chip Flynn's murder and Crosley Green's conviction on and off for about 15 years. It's one of those stories that just about anyone who has lived on Florida's space coast for any length of time has heard of. I cannot tell you how many times people have come up to me to ask, when will Crosley Green go free? Or, did Crosley Green really murder Chip Flynn in cold blood? When I started Season 1 of the Murder on the Space Coast podcast, Erin Moriarty tweeted me asking when I was doing a season about Crosley. A few months ago, I was in the evidence room at the Moore Justice Center in Vieira, Florida, looking at photographs for another story when the two evidence clerks asked me about Crosley Green. Just about everyone I meet, once they find out what I do for a living, wants to talk about prisoner number 902925, Crosley Green, a man with a heartbreaking childhood, troubled family, and checkered and criminal past of his own, who was convicted of murder and sentenced to die. The problem with this case is that only three people could really know what happened that mild evening on April 3, 1989, at a Little League baseball park in Mims, Florida. One of them is dead. Another swears he had nothing to do with it. And the third? Well, she's not talking. Now, despite the early receptive comments from two of the judges on that cold Atlanta morning, the third judge sounded as if he'd had his share of listening to lawyers argue that their clients were innocent and deserved new trials. Mr. Harrison, you have a terrible burden in the actual innocence case because he can't possibly be actual innocent unless uh, Green and the, the other chap there change of testimony is reasonable. But both of them went to the United States attorney to make a deal. Jim Scuthan, who was a long-term public defender in Middle Florida, represented one, and the man named Dees represented the other. So your problem is that if you're right, then Mr. Scuthan and Mr. Dees suborned perjury in the United States attorney's office. Your Honor. In terms of the recantations. Your Honor, with regard to the recantations, um, I don't believe it's I, a I just a make that observation because I, I, don't, I don't think that you quite see that. Your Honor, that is an excellent point. However, there's substantial additional evidence of I, actual I innocence. That, but those are two, the two critical witnesses. There's no question that the burden is, is a high one, Your Honor. But there's, the, not, there's, there's no question that if you're right, the assistant uh, federal public defender in the Middle District of Florida of long standing and his colleague suborned perjury. If, the, if what they said under oath was false, then I suggest that they, the lawyers ought to be investigated for separation of perjury. For Crosley Green to be innocent, the judge argued, then federal attorneys would have had to suborned perjury or encouraged their clients to give false testimony against Crosley Green. He sounded doubtful that could happen. Would prosecutors ever lie or knowingly present false evidence? Would defense attorneys ever encourage their clients to make deals and present whatever testimony was needed in a separate case to save their own skin? Well, if you're shaking your head no, then I encourage you to go and listen to seasons one, two, and four of my Murder on the Space Coast podcast. I tell this story all the time. My buddy, sports writer Brian McCallum, had just finished watching the Netflix documentary Making a Murderer a few years back. He sent me an excited, angry text. 
Can you believe something like this can happen in this country, he asked. In this country, I responded. I've seen it happen in this county. About five weeks after the Atlanta hearing, the panel of judges issued an 11-page ruling on December 15, 2017. Out of habit, I thumbed immediately to the very last paragraph, and here is what it said. We reverse the district court's dismissal of Mr. Green's petition as time-barred and remand for further proceedings. Reversed and remanded. Green's attorneys had won a small but important victory. They would be able to appeal his case after all. Could this be the change of fortune prisoner number 902925 has been waiting 28 years for? But before we get there, before we look into why Crosley Green was arrested, convicted, and sentenced to die for killing 22-year-old Chip Flynn, we need to talk about exactly what happened in the early morning hours of April 4, 1989, when this story begins. And to tell the story, however, we need to start on Monday, April 3rd, at a place called Holder Park in an area of Brevard County known as Mims. I live about 60 minutes away, and so I did not know the park at all. I wanted to get a feel for it, so I drove through it last year to get a sense of the park and the area. It's Monday, May 6th, and I just came from a funeral, uh, actually. Uh, retired Detective Sid Ledow, who you heard so much from during Season 3, the Brandy Hall case. It was just buried nearby Cape Canaveral National Cemetery. And so I decided to swing through Mims and check out Holder Park, which is where this story really begins. And I have to say that Mims, at least the part that I drove through, seemed like a kind of a sad little town that probably has seen its best days a long time ago. There was an antique shop, a few churches, a few empty fields. One field had a horse in it dutifully being followed by an egrette hoping for a snack, I guess. But Holder Park, which is seriously within a baseball throw of the water treatment plant, and at the end of a residential neighborhood filled with old but nicely kept houses, is actually a beautiful park. It's a Brevard County park, and it's the home of the Mims Little League. There are several baseball fields, lots of open spaces. There's a playground. And for all intents and purposes, it looks like the kind of place where good memories are spawned and not something like what happened to Chip Flynn and Crosley Green. Okay, so the story begins on Monday, April 3rd, 1989. Holder Park. It's early evening, and both Crosley Green and his younger brother O'Connor are there. Here is O'Connor explaining why to Prosecutor Chris White. When you hear Papa or Papa Green, they are referring to Crosley, who earned that moniker for taking care of his siblings from a young age. But I'll explain all that later on. And you live here in the, the Mims, Titusville area, and right now you're staying with your sister Celestine over on Briarcliff. Um, back on the night that this murder happened, uh, you were just telling me that you happened to go up to Holder Park. Right. So I gave a friend of mine a ride to Holder Park because he was refereeing a game. He asked me, could he, could he catch a ride to Bill? And I told him, yeah. And that's Charles Smith or Pookie Smith, right? Yeah, something like that. I don't know. And uh, Mr. Smith was going to umpire a game up there. Well, he umpired a game. Now, when you went up there with him, did you stay for a while? Yeah, I stayed for a while. Did you see he was umpiring? And um, did you watch him while he umpired a game for a while? No, I didn't stay until the game got started. I left before the game got started. Now, was anyone else with you and him when you drove up there, or was it just you and he alone? Just me and him, and my brother, Papa. Now, did Papa actually ride with you in the car? No. 
how did he get up there if you know you don't know but you did see him at the park now it's important to know that o'connor green crosley's younger brother was known to be one of the most notorious crack dealers during that time something for which he would later serve 20 somewhat years in a federal prison his crew operated out of the housing projects in east mims in fact the four-stop corner at East Main Street and Harriet T. Moore Avenue was their corner. It was referred to by both police and residents as 21 Jump Street. Here is Layman Lane, a drug user and felon, who used to work as an auto mechanic for O'Connor, talking to an FDLE agent. A look at the Brevard County Clerk of Courts website today shows that Lane remains no stranger to the law, even as we speak. Um, Crosley Green worked as a runner for his younger brother, helping sling dope at 21 Jump Street as well. And like Layman Lane, Crosley was no stranger to the law either. In fact, just two weeks before this night in question, Crosley got out of prison after serving an 18-month sentence for selling cocaine. Crosley was a pop-up again with what was he into? I mean, what would he do? Let's go tell, tell me a little bit about him. I mean, was he, what his personality was like? What he did drug-wise? Was he no, he didn't rock too. Crack cocaine, yes. Himself. Did he sell any of it? Mm-hmm. He sold a lot of it. Would he sell anything else? Any other type of drugs? Not that I know of. He might have sold some powder, but I don't mean that his thing was rock itself. Was there a certain area that he would uh, sell? Right there, 21 jump, right there. So both O'Connor Green and Crosley are at Holder Park checking out a baseball game or hanging out or whatever. The park is only slightly more than two miles away from 21 Jump Street, not more than a five-minute car ride west on Main Street. At just about the same time the Green brothers are hanging out at Holder Park, a 19-year-old by the name of Kim Halleck was getting ready to leave her Titusville home to attend her Principals of Banking class at Brevard Community College. She arrived in time for her 6.15 class only to learn that it had been canceled for the night. Kim drove home, walked across the street to her best friend's house, and then went back home where she happily found that the movie Pretty in Pink was starting up on television. Remember, this is the 80s and we all loved Molly Ringwald. Also starting at 9 that night on TV was the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship game. And exactly one mile away from Kim Halleck's couch, two best buddies and former roommates... David Stroop and Chip Flynn were at Stroop's trailer to watch the game, which turned out to be an instant classic, by the way, that saw Michigan beat Seton Hall 90-89 in overtime. Here is Stroop being interviewed by Chicago Private Eye Paul Cialino. 
As far as I remember, Chip and I uh, watched a, an NCAA basketball game. Okay. And about what time did that end, or did you guys split up that night? Uh, about 10.30, I believe I was starting to fall asleep. I was getting tired, and then Chip then left. Okay. And did Chip tell you where he was going to go when he left? Um, no, I assumed he was going home, being the hour that it was. And, and that night when he left you, uh, what was his physical condition? No, he was fine. He's okay? Hey, yeah. Was he upset or angry about anything? I didn't seem to be at all. It seemed to be the same old Chip. He was good natured, you know. So Chip leaves his friend's place well before a controversial call in the final seconds allowed Michigan to tie the score and send the game into overtime. And no, he wasn't angry. Apparently, he was feeling something else because he drove his loud 1982 Chevrolet Stepside 4x4 pickup truck exactly one mile down Shady Oaks Drive onto North Singleton to Pollyanna Drive for a late night visit to his ex-girlfriend who was now apparently just a friend with benefits. Chip Flynn and Kim Halleck met nearly two years earlier during a fireworks display on the river. They hit it off and started dating exclusively for about a year and a half. Chip ended the relationship two months before that fateful April night, but the pair was still involved in a sexual relationship. There's no real explanation given for why the couple broke up, though we do know that Chip soon began to date other people, while still maintaining his friendship with Kim. The thing is that Chip wasn't just dating other people, he was involved in a sexual relationship with another woman named Patty. And that did not sit well with Kim. During the trial, Kim said, quote, It made me upset. Back to that night. Chip and Kim watched the last hour of Pretty in Pink, and then he suggested they go for a ride. She didn't even bother putting on a pair of shoes. Kim went out wearing just an oversized jersey and a pair of shorts. They left her home on Pollyanna Drive, where she lived with her parents, and stopped for a Mountain Dew on the corner of Singleton and Derry. Here is Kim talking to Brevard's sheriff's agent at the time, Scotty Nyquist. When was the first time that you saw Chip yesterday, which would have been 4-3 of 89? About 10 o'clock at night, he came over to my house. Came over to your house? Yes. By himself? By himself. Okay. Um, and what did you do? We watched TV for about an hour, and then he asked me if I wanted to go for a ride, and I said, sure. Okay. Um, and did you leave the house? Yes. About what time? Had to have been a little after 11. Okay. We watched the movie. Okay. Um, what did you leave in? What vehicle? It was a 82 Chevrolet Stepside. 4x4 pickup truck. What color? Dark blue. Who did that belong to? Chip. Okay. And where did you go after you left the house? First we went to the store on Daring Singleton, the Jiffy Food store. Mm -hmm. He got a Mountain Dew. Okay. When you got to the store, uh, who went inside? I went in. Okay. And Chip remained in the car? Yes. Okay. And did you purchase anything when you went in the store? Just the Mountain Dew, and I went to the bathroom. Okay. After you came back out and left the store, where did you go? We went down Singleton to Westwood to Holder Road to Holder Park. And he went up and parked up in the dunes next to the woods under some trees. Mm-hmm. Have you ever parked in that same uh, location before? Yes. Approximately how many times? About two. So you were somewhat familiar with that area? Yes. Um, what was your reason for going to that particular location that night? He just drove there. You don't have any idea no, why? I have no idea. 
So Kim says they left their house after the movie, which aired on ABC and ended at 11. At trial, Kim said that after buying Chip a Mountain Dew at the Jiffy Mart, they arrived at Holder Park and parked at a secluded dark area situated between trees that was described as a tree alley, a sort of lover's lane. She testified at trial that she'd wanted to discuss Chip's other girlfriend, Patty, whom he met while working for Alligator Plumbing. Kim testified that it was a civil conversation and that no one got angry. She also said that she never really thought about a future with Chip, such as marriage. But according to a deposition taken before the case went to trial, Kim's mother Donna had this to say when being questioned by defense attorney Rob Parker. Quote, Did she ever tell you deep down inside she thought Chip was someone she wanted to marry? Parker asked. Quote, Yeah, I think so, the mother replied. Would it be a fair statement to say you as a mother were contemplating potentially a marriage between your daughter and Chip? Answer, quote, yeah, I think so. Why bring this up? Well, Kim admits to not being happy that Chip was seeing someone else, and that could be very important. It's also one of the many inconsistencies in Kim's retelling of events that night. Now, some of those inconsistencies might just be explained simply by the fact that Kim was a 19-year-old girl who experienced a trauma and can't remember things exactly as they occurred. It could also be that she didn't want to admit certain things to police for fear that she might get into trouble. Or lastly, it could mean something entirely nefarious. But we'll get there in time. So back to that night, here is Kim telling Sheriff's Homicide Detective Scotty Nyquist what happened next. We sat and talked, and about 10-15 minutes after we got there, I saw a sheriff go by. He didn't see us in about, say about another few minutes after that, a black guy walked up in front of the truck. Okay, prior, prior to that, what was the deputy doing when he drove through, through the area? putting spotlight on everything, I guess checking the park. Mm-hmm. Did he shine the light on your vehicle when he came by, or did he? I thought he did, but he said he didn't see us. So okay. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Okay. And after the deputy drove by, how long was it until uh, you observed the black male? It had been a couple minutes mm-hmm. after that. Okay. And what did you observe? I was looking out, and then I looked down, and I saw the black guy come up, and I told Chip, there's a black guy on your side, and he rolled up the window real quick. Okay. Which way did the black guy approach the truck? From the front of the truck, from the baseball field. On the driver's side? On the driver's side. Okay. And what happened is he walked by the truck? He told us that we better watch out because there was a sheriff going by. Mm-hmm. Could you describe that black male or could you see him that well at that time? I really just saw him. It was just a blur because it just scared me. Okay, so according to Kim, after a sheriff's deputy drives by, a black guy approaches their vehicle and tells them to be careful. Now, we know from her court testimony that she admitted that her and Chip had been smoking pot. Maybe the black guy smelled it that they had been smoking and wanted to warn them. We don't know. But later that night, Kim would go on to tell a 911 operator that a black guy walked by them and didn't say anything. Then later still, she tells Brevard Sheriff's Deputy Wade Walker that the black guy tried selling them drugs and Chip had to force him to leave. That's three different accounts of the same story in just a very short amount of time. But like I keep saying, we'll get there. Kim says the encounter scared her. But they don't leave the park, and after a while, Chip gets out of the truck to urinate. That's when, according to Kim, a second encounter with the black eye occurs, and the night begins to sour very quickly. This season on Murder on the Space Coast, 
left to die. So I just shot somebody, I don't know if I killed him or whatever. I got rid of an orange grove. Had he indicated he'd been having a problem with any particular person? No. He, he's a nice, calm person. He's going to get along with He's not like that. It didn't appear that Chip knew this black male? No. He don't, don't like black guys. As you sit here today, do you believe Crosley Green is the man who shot you? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. For now, I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on this case and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.